Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 15. We are in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion. He's been on the cross between 9 and 12 o'clock. And now we're going to take up in this audio the three hours between 12 and 3 o'clock when he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday afternoon. We'll start in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 35, and we'll, of course, refer to all four Gospels as we go through these events. Starting with Mark 15, verse 33, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now that Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani is Aramaic, and it's translated out because the first two words, Eloi, Eloi, and in Matthew it's Eli, Eli, which is is the same thing in Hebrew according to John Gill, and I take his word for it, I don't know Hebrew, but the words, the first two words, Eloi, Eloi, sound like Elijah, and that's why Mark and Matthew give the Aramaic to show to to make it explicable why some of those standing there said, "Look, he's calling for Elijah." Let's now turn to Matthew 27. We'll do verses 45 through 47. Matthew 27:45 says this: "From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land." So these last three hours that Jesus was on the cross, the land was dark. Now, what caused this darkness? A lot of people like to speculate about this. First option, eclipse of the sun. Can't be. Eclipses last only for a few minutes, not for three hours. Some people say, like John Gill, it was a supernatural eclipse, something that's out of the ordinary. Well, there's another problem. The moon is full at Passover, and eclipses don't happen during the time of a full moon, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. So, ladies and gentlemen, it was not an eclipse of the sun. Some People say that dark rain clouds came up, which is perfectly reasonable. The timing of it, of course, is kind of supernatural, right? When Jesus is dying on the cross, it gave a great dramatic effect to the whole scene there. Origen said that, the dark rain clouds came up. There's some other options listed in Wikipedia, such as volcanic dust might have blown by, or what is called a Kamsen dust storm, whatever that is, dust storms in the east that tend to occur from March to May, or it could have even been a sunstorm, a storm on the sun. I just think it was dark rain clouds that came up over. Early Christian apologists said it was a miracle because it was known even back then in the ancient times that eclipses could not occur at a full moon. But at any rate, whatever caused that darkness, it convinced the Roman centurion that Jesus was the Son of God, as we'll see in a little bit later when he saw what happened. Now notice that the darkness came over the land, over the whole land. That Greek word for land is gay, and gay can mean earth or land. It's totally ambiguous. Translator's choice, you have to go by the context. And so some people say that the darkness went over the whole earth. So let's look at that argument. John Gill says it's the darkness was over the whole earth. Adam Clark says it was not over the whole earth. In this case, I agree with Clark. I don't believe it was over the whole earth. I believe it was over the whole land of Israel. All right, so here's some of the evidence that Gill quotes saying that the darkness was outside the land of Israel. Quotes an ancient guy named Phlegon. I'm not familiar with him. But Clark refutes Phlegon's evidence by saying this. All the authors who quote him differ and often very materially in what they say was found in him. Phlegon says nothing of Judea. What he says that in such and such an Olympiad, in other words, such and such a year, 
there was an eclipse in Bithynia. So the date's not clear, and the place is Bith Bithynia, excuse me, not Bithynia, but Bithynia, which is in northwestern Asia Minor, oh, northwestern Anatolia, Turkey. And he mentions an earthquake at Nicaea, but not in Jerusalem. Flagon does not say an earthquake happened at the same time the eclipse happened. He does not intimate that the darkness was extraordinary or that it happened during a time of the full moon or that it lasted three hours. That's pretty weak. He speaks of merely of an ordinary, though perhaps total eclipse of the sun. Total eclipses of the sun don't last for three hours. All right, so that's not very good evidence. And then... Gill quotes people like Eusebius saying it happened all over the earth. I don't know what Eusebius' authority is. Authority is Tertullian said it happened over the whole earth, and he appealed to Roman archives. An author named Suetus says it was over the whole earth. Dionysius the Areopagite, the famous Dionysius the Areopagite, who is known in history as Pseudo-Dionysius, he's quoted everywhere. He was a philosopher writing about the 5th uh, or 6th century. His writings were a forgeries. They were forgeries. They were claimed to have been written by Dionysius the Areopagite, the guy who was saved on the on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens preaching. Adam Clark says this, it is enough to say of this man that all the writings attributed to him are known to be spurious and are proved to be forgeries of the 5th or 6th century. So we don't want to rely on him talking about a worldwide darkness. Another guy named Thallus a quotation from Thallus made by Africanus found in the Chronicle of Syncellus of the 8th century is allowed by eminent critics to be of little importance. Thallus speaks of a darkness over the whole world and an earthquake which threw down many houses in, houses in Judea and in other parts of the earth. It may be necessary to observe that Thallus is quoted by several of the ancient ecclesiastical writers for other matters, but never for this, and that the time in which he lived is so very uncertain the Dr. Lardner supposes there is no room to think he lived rather before, that there is room to think he lived rather before than after Christ. That is very, very weak evidence. And so Clark says the translation should be land, and I believe that's what it is. So darkness all over Israel, probably from rain clouds, from 12 to 3 o'clock. Let's go to Matthew 27:46. About 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I said when I read this passage in Mark, I said it was Aramaic. It's actually a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Remember, Aramaic is a dialect of the Hebrew language, so that there would be a mixture. That's no big deal. It happens all the time. If you ever listen to Chinese people, they, Chinese people speak as they mix dialect in with Mandarin. You'll see that people do that. This is the NIV Study Bible points out that it's a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Matthew translates it for his readers. Clark says there has been a debate, actually, over which language it is, either Hebrew or Syriac, which is Aramaic, a form of Aramaic. But the NIV Study Bible says it's not either or, it's both. What Jesus is doing is quoting from Psalm, Psalm 22.1, which says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? Why are you, are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? It's amazing that Jesus always quoted the Scripture. He quoted the Scripture to the devil. He quoted the Scripture to the Pharisees. He's all quoted the Scripture to the disciples. He was full of the Scripture. He believed in the written Word of God, unlike certain evangelical wussy pusses today who are constantly talking about the alleged so-called errors in the Scriptures just because they don't take a little bit of effort to harmonize different scriptural accounts. John Gill points out at 3 in the afternoon, 
was just about the time of the slaying and the offering of the daily sacrifice, the morning and offer sacrifice about nine o'clock, evening sacrifice about three o'clock. And so this is appropriate. He dies as the sacrifice for all of the human race who believe in him. Now, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is speaking, of course, from his human nature. God the Father cannot forsake God the Son. I mean, that's just not possible. His divine nature, he's divine. God can't forsake himself. He's talking about his human nature. As a result, he walked in our shoes. He was the perfect sacrifice. He experienced everything that we experienced. Have you ever felt abandoned by God because of your sin? Who hasn't? Jesus himself felt that. Now, he had been silent during the whole three hours of darkness from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden, he broke out in anguish, feeling the divine wrath, feeling the opposition of the powers of darkness, something that is utterly unimaginable and unthinkable to our human ears. Now, what does he mean when he says he was forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, here's the. let's look at some options. The first option, which is impossible, is that the hypostatical union, that is the, the union of, of the human nature and the divine nature, that union was dissolved. And, of course, that can't be true. That's absurd. That can never happen. Second option, God didn't love Jesus anymore. Well, that's absurd, too. Of course, God, God the Father still loved God the Son. That's ridiculous. Third option, Jesus was separated from the knowledge and presence of God. Now that, I believe, is what happened because Jesus in his human nature was separated from the knowledge and presence of God because he was carrying the sins of the world. And that's just like us. We're all born with the wrath of God on our heads, a judgment of death on our heads when we come into this world, and we're separated from God because of our sins. We don't know him, can't communicate with him because we have sin. Well, Jesus had sin. He bore the sins of the world, and so he was separated from his conscience presence of being close to God during his life. I will point out here there's another option, optional translation. Adam Clark gives it as, my God, my God, to what sort of persons has thou left me? Ooh, that's a little bit weak, I think. I don't like that translation. I don't know how strong it is, how reasonable it is, but I don't think that's going to fly. Let me repeat the application for Christians. If Jesus, our high priest, suffered the things that we do, and he did, then it will be normal for us to feel at some point abandoned by God. And every Christian has gone through that way. They say, God, where are you? Some people have actually criticized Jesus. Can you believe that? Criticizing Jesus for saying this. How could the Son of God say something like that, that God had abandoned him? Of course God had not forsaken him. Adam Clark says of these critics, they are unworthy of a man who suffers, conscious of his innocence, and, and these words argue imbecility, impatience, and despair. In other words, they're stupid for saying something like that. We go to verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah because they heard that Eli, Eli, Lama, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, in Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever language it was. That's why Matthew translated the language because it makes sense of these words. He's calling for Elijah. Now, it could be that those who heard didn't understand the phrase, Eli, Eli, Lama, Salvechthani. They didn't understand it because... They didn't know Hebrew. They might have been Hellenistic Jews standing around. So say Adam Clark and John Gill. Or it could just be that there were Jews standing by. Couldn't clearly hear what Jesus said. Either way, it's reasonable that they would ask about Elijah. Especially since Elijah was commonly thought to come in times of distress to rescue the righteous. As my NIV study Bible says. You know, even today, Jews at the Passover, they leave an empty chair for Elijah to come. Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. Remember the story about John the Baptist? And Jesus said... 
and people ask him, well, where's John the Baptist? If you're the Messiah, where's John the Baptist? And Jesus said, John the Baptist has already been here. Excuse me, Elijah's already been here. His name was John the Baptist. So that's why they were asking for Elijah. We now turn to John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. This, of course, is three o'clock in the afternoon when he's about to die. He knew that everything was accomplished. That means everything that was involved in the salvation of the human race from its sin, assuming you believed in Jesus, that was accomplished. That was done. He had borne the sins of the world. And then he said, I'm thirsty. Now, of course, being thirsty is a natural thing for crucified people. I saw an account of a young guy that got crucified outside of Damascus, and he put up with all kinds of suffering and, and historically, but the last day, he was, it took him three days to die, and the last day... He was saying, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And there was water nearby, and he kept looking at it. So apparently, crucified people are extremely dehydrated, and the thirst about drives them crazy. The fatigue, of course, he hadn't slept in over a day. He'd been beaten, nailed to a cross. He was eaten up with grief. It was hot, probably. he lost a lot of blood. So it's natural that he was thirsty. Now, it says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, how? Everything was accomplished that the Scripture might be fulfilled, or the Scripture might be fulfilled when Jesus said, I'm thirsty. People debate that. Here's some possible references as to how the Scripture could be fulfilled when he said, I'm thirsty. Psalm 69:21, which says this, Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Sounds like a pretty good reference there. Psalm 22:15. My strength is dried up like bait clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. And of course, Psalm 22 is the famous Messianic Psalm. All kinds of scripture in there point to the crucifixion. So the NIV Study Bible Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown all refer to Psalm 22:15 as being a prophecy being fulfilled by this thirsty remark. That could be. Or it could be that the scripture might be fulfilled by everything that was accomplished in his life. His life his teaching, his miracles, his suffering on the cross, his passion, all of this, which would refer, of course, to Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. I tend to think it's that. It's all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. All the scriptures that pointed to the salvation of, the, of Jesus, the salvation of the world through Jesus' sacrifice. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 27, verses 48 and 49, starting with verse 48. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. One of the bystanders, could be a bystander, could be a soldier, ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink. John 19, verse 29, says that there was a vessel full of vinegar set close by. That verse says this, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Now, why did they do this? Here's some options as to the motives of the of, the, of the, those standing by. They could have been doing it to revive his spirits. Now, Gil denies that. I think Gil's wrong. In my opinion, somebody had sympathy on him. William Lane, the famous commentator on Mark, says that the bystanders wanted to keep Jesus alive long enough to see if Elijah would rescue him. In other words, the more he drank, the longer he's going to live. Maybe Elijah will come get him off the cross. Now, there's an interesting thing here. When Jesus first got, maybe it was on the Via Dolorosa on the road to Golgotha, or maybe it was when he got there, but the women of Jerusalem offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and Jesus refused it because that was a narcotic. It was supposed to dull some of the pain, but Jesus wanted to be fully conscious when he bore the sins of the world. And here he took the drink, according to some commentators, 
it's questionable whether he actually drank it. We'll see in John, it says he received the vinegar. It's not clear that he actually drank it. But assuming he did drink it, it was because he wanted to stay long, awake as long as possible to make sure that his mission of bearing the sins of the world was accomplished. Some people have said the wine, sour wine was offered to hasten Jesus' death, but that can't be. Sour wine was a refreshing drink that soldiers and laborers used all the time. John Gill claims it was to mock him. Jesus said he's thirsty, and so they say, oh, you're thirsty, huh? Well, let me give you some wine. Well, why would that mock him? Because wine is a good drink, not a bad drink. William Lane says there is no instance recorded anywhere of vinegar being given to mock anyone. It was a very refreshing drink, so that's not going to fly. So I think that William Lane has it right that the wine, the sour wine was offered to Jesus to refresh him, to keep him alive a little bit longer to see if Elijah would come save him. We go to Matthew 27, verse 49. But the rest said, other people there said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now, I've already mentioned this. The NIV Study Bible said that it was commonly believed that Elijah would come in times of critical need to rescue the righteous. The Jews thought that Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah, as we know from Jesus' teaching. So it's logical for him to come to rescue the Messiah. And John Gill points out the Jews had a notion that Elijah commonly came and talked to the people. So that's why they were asking for Elijah. Now let's turn to John's account of this incident. John 19, verse 29 a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Now, we have, hyssop is an extra detail. That's a name given to a number of plants in the Old Testament, according to, according to the NIV Study Bible. As the question arises, what is the relationship of the hyssop to the sponge? Adam Clark says a great variety of conjectures have been produced to solve the difficulty in this test. I don't in this text. I don't see why it's such a difficulty, really. Here's one option. The reed and the hyssop were the same thing. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirmed this. The hyssop was, and then at the end of the hyssop, the hyssop was attached to the sponge. A hyssop was a kind of a medicinal type plant, like aloe vera, aromatic, positive things go with hyssop. It was used in the Old Testament ritual, you know, the, I think in the, in the ritual of the red bull, the heifer. Another option is that the reed and the hyssop were distinct things. The hyssop was tied to the reed on one end and to the sponge on the other. Well, I don't know about that. I think it's probably just easy to say that there was a reed hyssop at the end of the reed. It was given to Jesus. All right, now, it was held up to his mouth, John says. Either he drank it or he didn't drink it. It's not certain whether he drank it, according to to John Gill. I've seen some writers who are very certain that he drank it. The very, very next verse, which I'll read now, sounds like... He did drink it because in verse 30 in John 19, it says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, when he had received it. Now, that's a little bit ambiguous. You're not sure whether they just took it up there and he looked at it and, and he didn't take it and he didn't actually drink it, but he just you know, took it. He took it with his mouth because they, they held it up to his mouth. But I think he finally took it. He realized that he was finished bearing the sins of the world. Then he said, He's, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, let me read you some good quotes about this very famous last words of Jesus. It is finished. You know what the last words of Socrates were? I owe Asclepius a cock. I mean, this noble death of Socrates that everybody talks about so much. The last thing he said was, I need to sacrifice a rooster to a god. Apparently, even Socrates, as calm as he was about death, he was still worried about maybe a god might not quite be satisfied with him. But anyway. 
Jesus' death is much more majestic. He said it is finished. The NIV Study Bible says he came to do what he accomplished to do. Adam Clark says this, quote, I have executed the great designs of the Almighty. I have satisfied the demands of his justice. I have accomplished all that was written in the prophets and suffered the utmost malice of my enemies. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am finished. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, quote, The law is fulfilled as never before, nor since, in his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Messianic prophecy is accomplished. Redemption is completed. He hath finished the transgression and made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and prophecy and anointed a holy of holies. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God and given birth to a new world. So that's a pretty majestic statement. It, it, there was a lot of majestic thoughts contained in that short phrase, it is finished. Now when it says he gave up his spirit, that's an unusual way of describing death according to the NIV study Bible. And it perhaps suggests an act of the will. In other words, he freely laid down his life by giving up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. That's a supposition. Reasonable, I suppose, even though it's probably unprovable. Now let's go to Matthew 27:50 and read this. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Here we have some more details. First of all, it says he shouted again with a loud voice. So twice did he, he shouted when he was on the cross. The first time he shouted was in verse 46 of Matthew 27. In that verse, which we just read recently, it says this, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that it was with a loud voice that he did this. And remember, crucified criminals don't speak with loud voices. They have absolutely no energy left. But Jesus cried out very loudly, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll see you later. That's really influenced the people watching this crucifixion, that this was not a normal man who was being crucified on this cross. That was the first time that Jesus cried out loudly. The second time is here in verse 50 in Matthew 27. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice, It is finished. We, we know that by comparing the loud voice in Matthew 27, 50 to the It is finished in John 19:30. Now, here's some options as to what this loud voice showed, what kind of emotions this loud voice showed. John Gill says it could have showed the vehemency of his affection because of his love for God, his strong confidence in God, his fearlessness of death. Jesus could Jesus could have said it loudly so the crowd could hear because what he was saying was of great importance. And we're talking about it now, 2000 years later. It is finished. He had just expiated the sins of the world. That's an important thing that he did and so people needed to hear about it and I mentioned how weak he was at this point and how unique it was that he could have shouted out with a loud voice it's good to remember how weak Jesus would have been at this point as John Gill says after such agonies in the garden and so much fatigue and being heard from place to place and such loss of blood as being buffeted scourged crowned with thorns and nailed to the accursed tree where being stretched he had hung for some hours that he could cry out with such a loud voice was a mark of his divinity, John Gill says. We see in Mark 15:39 the effect it had on the centurion. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. We'll talk about that, about that a little bit more later. But see, that loud voice had a great impact on the people standing around. As the NIV study Bible, this was such an unusual thing because crucified men were usually exhausted and unconscious before dying. 
Now, when it says he gave up his spirit, that means he voluntarily died. His life was not taken from him, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. He was a free will sacrifice for sin, according to Adam Clark. He did not hang on the cross till he died through pain and agony. He gave up his spirit. His bones were not broken to kill him because he was already dead when the soldiers came by and checked because he had given up his spirit. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 46. One more verse and we'll be finished with the crucifixion. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That entrust my spirit is something extra or different than the other Gospels. So that, of course, emphasizes the idea which I've already mentioned that his death was voluntarily. He voluntarily gave his spirit up. Saying this, he breathed his last. Now, by the way, showing by saying, I entrust my spirit to God the Father, that shows that Jesus believed in an immaterial spirit that was separate from the body. There have been throughout philosophic history people who were materialists who say that there is no soul, that, so, that our conscious mind is a result of material processes in the brain. No. What Jesus said, when I give up my spirit, this is another proof of the immateriality of the soul and of its separate existence when the body is dead, as Adam Clark said. And if that's true of Jesus, he's the, he's the paradigm new creation, the new man. That means our souls are immaterial and we ain't ever going to die. All right, now let's examine what Robertson calls the phenomena accompanying the death of Christ. We're going to look at three Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't have anything. We'll start with Luke verse the last part of verse 45 which says this the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle this is right at the time of Jesus's death at three o'clock in the afternoon that curtain was the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies according to my NIV study bible let me read you from Exodus 26 31 through 33 the legal description of how the curtain was supposed to be made you're to make a veil of blue purple and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it Hang it on four gold-plated posts of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the veil under the clasp and during the Ark of the Testimony there behind the veil. So the veil will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And of course that veil was to keep people from wandering in or, or invading the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies is where the Shekinah glory of God was and he was totally holy and we are so sinful that nobody can go in there without getting killed except the priest on the Day of Atonement. So when this veil was split, this symbolism is very clear. It means now we can walk straight into the Holy of Holies because Jesus died, and that veil is not there anymore to keep us out of the presence of God. In other words, Jesus has made it possible for believers to go directly into the presence of God. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he is opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So now there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We can all just walk right in there without having to go through the priesthood because Jesus is our high priest. We've entered through his flesh, which is a shorthand way of saying he died on the cross and therefore we can enter into God's presence now. So that's like saying we enter in through his flesh. Now this was an astonishing sight. The earthquake that happened right at Jesus' death at 3 o'clock most likely screwed up the lentils on the temple and uh, the lentils on the temple and probably broke the heavy lentil 
and the curtain came crashing down, and, and which would have been an astonishing sight because the curtain was very thick, and it was 40 cubits high. That's about 60 feet high. Huge temple, top to bottom. Let's now turn to Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53, to continue the story. Suddenly, verse 51 starts, says, Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. A little bit more detail here than in Luke. Quake. The earth quaked. According to John Gill, this was an indication of divine anger at what had been done. A detestation of the sin of crucifying Christ. If that, if Gill is right, that's a perfect, I think that would be a perfect symbol for God saying, ah, oh, look, this is what you've done. Earthquake. Now, earthquakes are a part of decreation rhetoric, which you see in apocalyptic rhetoric all through the Old Testament when you see the earth quaking, the mountains melting, the stars falling from the sky like figs, the moon turning red and the sun turning dark. That means it's regime change time, and that's what, of course, this fits that perfectly because the Old Testament Jewish rabbinic kingdom is about to go down, and Jesus' new spiritual kingdom is about to take its place. Here's some old examples of Old Testament passages showing earthquakes, showing God's anger. Psalm 18:7. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Nahum 1, verse 5. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. John Gill says that the says that the emblem uh, that the earthquake was an emblem emblem of the shaking and removing of the Jewish state. And he quotes Hebrews 12:26. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And that shaking is supposed to be the end of the Jewish order. John Gill's not the only person that says that. I remember David Chilton, the Orthodox Protestant theologian, said the same thing. It's referring to the shaking of the Jewish state. Now this earthquake, is it local or is it extended to the whole world? People love to debate this. John Gill says it's unclear whether the earthquake was local to Jerusalem or rather... Did it extend to other parts of the earth? Pliny, one of the Plinies, relates an earthquake in the reign of Tiberius in which 12 Asian cities fell. I don't care. I, there were earthquakes all, all over the place in the ancient world. I believe that this earthquake was local to show that God is putting his wrath on Israel because of what Israel did by crucifying its Messiah. Now, it says the earthquake splits the rocks. Here in Matthew 27, at the end of the verse, it says, And the rocks were split. This would explain how these resurrected saints that we're going to talk about in a minute, how they got out of the graves. Verse 52 in Matthew 27, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now this interesting passage, which I've always found kind of interesting because it's it's kind of enigmatic. Not, uh, not a lot said about it. It's only in Matthew's gospel. People don't ever talk about it too much. But it says that these tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who had died, were raised. So there's a resurrection going on at the same time somewhere around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. John Gill and the NIV Study Bible say that these resurrections are probably symbolic of Jesus' conquering death through his work on the cross. Now, let's look at some options concerning the timing of these resurrections. First option is they... These saints could have been raised at Jesus' resurrection and then went into Jerusalem after the resurrection. We need to look ahead a little bit. The next verse, Matthew 27:53 says, And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection. Well, 
you could take that and say, okay, after Jesus is resurrected, they were resurrected, and then they came out of the tombs. That's option number one. Option number two is they were raised Friday, on Good Friday at Jesus' death, and then Sunday they went into the city because the verse in the next verse in Matthew 27:53 says they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. It doesn't say they were raised after his resurrection. It just says they came out of the tombs. They could have been raised Friday, hung around in the tombs for three days, and then came out Sunday and walked into Jerusalem. That's a possibility. I'm going to show you. I don't think that's likely. They, uh, well, another option is they could have been raised on Friday when Jesus died and then just hung around the tombs and then walked into the city on Jerusalem again. But why would they do that? It doesn't make sense they would lie awake, alive, in a grave for three days and then come out. Or coming out of the grave because of the, earth, the earthquake had split the graves open, they came out, and then they just hung around before they decided to walk into Jerusalem. I mean, that's possible, but I don't think so. I think they were raised when Jesus was raised. And one reason I think that is because it would take away from the primacy of Jesus' resurrection if other people got raised before Jesus did. Jesus was the first that should rise from the dead, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. Here's some scriptures that point out this, Acts 26, verse 23, that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people. 1 Corinthians 15:20. but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15:23. but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Colossians 1.18, he also is head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Well, you could say, well, that just means he's the first resurrected to a glorified body. All those verses, that's what they're talking about. And these saints weren't resurrected to a glorified body on Friday when they allegedly were raised, but they were resuscitated rather than resurrected. They were resuscitated in the same way that Lazarus was resuscitated. They just came back to their natural life without a glorified body like Lazarus did. Well, that's a bunch of speculation. I think it's just as easy to say that when Jesus rose again from the dead, they rose at the same time to show that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection and that he's going to raise us from the dead just like he rose again from the dead. And so this passage in Matthew 27 is a very, very important passage in my opinion. In fact, I know one Orthodox preterist teacher who says that Dan, the last verse of Daniel 12 or the next to the last verse where it says that those who are sleeping in the dust shall rise refers to this because the timing of Daniel 12 looks like it's around the time of the resurrection, uh, not the end of the world, but the resurrection, and these Matthew 27 saints coming out of the ground were referred to by Daniel. It fits the timing pretty good. But that's Those are some small, minor, complicated theological points. We'll just point out that Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection, and there were saints that were resurrected with him. And, of course, that means we are going to have a resurrected body, unlike certain heretical preterists I know who want to deny the resurrection of the dead and thus proclaim themselves to be heretics. No, we're going to have a resurrected body. Matthew 27, verse 53. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered, entered the holy city and appeared to many. The holy city, of course, is Jerusalem, and it's kind of ironic. Jerusalem was not very holy. They murdered Jesus and they murdered the prophets. But it's, a, it's the way people called it because it was the capital city. And people called it the holy city even though it really wasn't. It's just like in South Carolina, we have a holy city. It's called Charleston. People call it the holy city all the, holy city all the time. It's an ironic use of the term because Charleston ain't holy at all. 
For years, we had liquor laws down here. Nobody in the state could open up a beer in a restaurant hardly. But by golly, the liquor flowed like wine in Charleston because they were above the law. There, because they were the holy city. Now, it says that these resurrected saints came into Jerusalem and appeared to many. This was to establish the truth of the resurrection. They could witness. I imagine they probably had a pretty good near-death experience. Could talk about what it was like being in heaven and how they got there. And it was Jesus that raised them. And that was to establish the truth of his resurrection. They said, this man that they put in the tombs a couple of days ago, he's out. And, of course, the disciples are going to be saying the same thing. And the word's getting around. And pretty soon people starting to talk. And pretty soon the church is growing. And pretty soon people getting saved all over the place. 1 Corinthians 15:20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. A few minor points before we leave Matthew 27. I mentioned that the Holy Jerusalem was called the Holy City. It was called holy because the temple was there, not just because it was the capital of Israel, because of that temple. That's why. And also, about these resurrected bodies, according to Adam Clark, some people say that bodies were not resurrected. They were merely thrown up and exposed to view by the earthquake, although I don't know how these people could explain the fact they walked into Jerusalem afterwards. Sort of strange, if you ask me. Now we turn back to Mark, chapter 15, verse 39. And read this, when the centurion who was standing opposite him, opposite Jesus, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. Now, the Matthew version, which we'll get to in just a minute, shows that it was not just the centurion who believed, but the other centurions who were with him. I should say the other soldiers who were with the centurion. Matthew 27:54. when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. So these soldiers saw, they heard Jesus cry out with a loud voice twice, which most condemned criminals on the cross, and all condemned criminals on the cross never do. They saw three hours of darkness topped off by an earthquake. <laughs> so they're pretty scared. I mean, think about this. If you're a soldier and you've been mocking Jesus, and spitting on his face and slapping him and put a crown of thorns on his head and a fake robe and a fake scepter or reed in his hands and say, prophesy, who hit you? And all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe this man really was God's son and we just killed him. We just nailed him up on a cross. I bet they didn't feel too good. Now let's turn to Matthew 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those with him, as I just read, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had, that had happened, they were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. Now, they made a confession that the events terrified them into. The question is, what kind of confession was it? What did they mean when they say he was God's son? Well, here are some options. The first, options, first option is that this was a Christian confession. The NIV Study Bible sort of leaned toward this. JFB says, mentions it. It sounds like he's... The soldier is contradicting the mockeries of the Jews in verse 40 in Matthew 27, which says this, The one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, so people were mocking him and saying, Oh, so you're the Son of God, huh? You're the Son of God. Well, why are you on that cross? The soldiers heard that, and then they say, You know what? He really was the Son of God. That makes a lot of sense to me. I tend to be a little optimistic about that. I think he got saved. I hope so. And I hope the soldiers with him will be in heaven. If we'll find out when we get there, we can ask. Another option that this was not a Christian confession, but was rather a confession that Jesus was one favored by pagan gods. This man really was a son of a pagan god. Well, I don't know. Adam, that's John Gill's 
uh, favorite solution, uh, a solution that John Gill mentions at least, and Adam Clark mentions the fact that the centurion could have been saying that Jesus was a very eminent, maybe even a divine person, a hero, kind of like Hercules. Adam Clark says this, a son of God, as the Romans used the term, would signify no more than a very eminent or divine person, a hero. So it's not really clear whether the man was saved or not, but he was definitely impressed. Definitely thought he was innocent, not a criminal. The centurion, by the way, was the one in charge of Jesus' four executioners. The centurion usually commanded about 100 men in the Roman army. And the centurion was the guy that in charge of the four soldiers who were guarding Jesus on the cross. Now we go down to verse 55. Actually, we don't go to 55 right now. Let's hold off on that. We now turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 47 and 48. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous, or God's son is Mark and Luke, uh, excuse me, uh, Matthew and Mark put it, he really was righteous, which is the same thing as saying he was God's son, because you could translate it, this man was the righteous one, capital R, capital O. Now, whether he meant it as God's son, or rather just as he was an innocent man, it's difficult to, t to determine, as the NIV study Bible says, but however, whichever way he meant it, he declared Jesus was innocent. The gospel writers felt it was significant, because the centurion was in charge of the crucifixion, and the person in charge of the crucifixion said Jesus was innocent. Now we move to the consideration of who was standing there looking at the, at the crucifixion. We go back to Mark chapter 15, verses 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. Excuse me, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, comma, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Lots of women supporting Jesus during their ministry. We often forget about this because these men kept traveling around, could not have done it without women to help them. Some of them were out with their money. In fact, Luke 8, 3 says this, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, was, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. That's how these fishermen who didn't have any fish anymore because they quit their Job, that's how they were making it, because some of these women were giving them money. Now let's look and see who some of these guys, some of these women are. All right, let's turn to Matthew 27, verse 55. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministered to him were there, looking on from a distance. As we said, they supported him and ministered to him. They helped him. You probably, I wouldn't be surprised if they cooked the disciples' food even. Maybe washed their clothes even. Stuff, you know, the nitty-gritty things that people don't ever think about. What it's like traveling around. A country barefoot, uh, not barefoot, but uh, without a job, being itinerant apostles. A lot of work to be done. A lot of un, a lot of work that's not very gl glamorous. Now they were there. Why were they at a distance? It says they were separated by the crowd of mocking people and the soldiers. Say John Gill, and it was hard for the women to push through all that. That's probably true. Adam Clark says it's because they were modest and the prisoners were crucified naked. Well, maybe. Maybe both reasons why they were standing at a distance. Now, you notice the women were there. Where was Peter? The one who said he would follow Jesus even to the death. He wasn't there. How about the other disciples besides Peter? They weren't there, except maybe John, because Jesus eventually entrusted his mother to John. But most of them had fled and stayed fled. Quote from Adam Clark, To their everlasting honor, these women evidenced more courage and affectionate attachment to their Lord and Master than the disciples did, who had promised to die with him rather than forsake him. God bless these women. Let's go to Matthew 27, verse 56. 
Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, I just finished reading in the parallel passage in Mark, Salome is in the place of the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so we put those two together and we figured that Salome is James and John's mother. Salome was the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John. She was the one that wanted they wanted James and John to sit at the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom. So that's one that was standing there with Jesus. Then we got Mary Magdalene. We know about her because in Mark 16:9 we read this. Early on the first day of the week after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. So she was the first person to see Jesus upon his resurrection, and she was also a demoniac, a severe demoniac. She had seven demons. Luke 8, 2 says this, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, parentheses, seven demons had come out of her. So she's well known. No trouble identifying her. Now, this other Mary is sort of shadowy. I always call her the other Mary. She's not Mary Magdalene. She's not the Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's the other Mary. She's the mother of James and Joseph. She's also called the wife of Cleophas or Alphaeus. Alphaeus and Cleophas is the same thing, the same name. Now, there's all kinds of controversy over who these people are. I don't know how deep I want to get into it. I think I can, can say with a little bit of confidence that this other Mary was the mother of James the Younger, because in the list of disciples, James the Younger is called James the son of Alphaeus, Matthew 10:3, And Cleophas is another word named for Alphaeus. In John 19:25, that Cleophas we just read, we're going to assume is Alphaeus. And this is a very complicated uh, issue, and I'm not going to get into it in any more detail. It's, the speculations are just on and on and on about who's who. But I just think, to keep it simple, I'm going to say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Not mentioned here, but later, because John, Jesus turns her over to John. Then we got Salome, the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee. We got Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, James, uh, the wife of Alphaeus, the other Mary. And then we got Mary Magdalene, the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead, out of whom seven demons were cast. They were all standing there. And... It has been said that these women were mentioned here for the sake of the narrative because of the narrative about purchasing spices for the Lord's body because we're going to see later that these women came to prepare Jesus' body for burial even though Joseph and Nicodemus had, was doing that. They watched and they were going to come early Easter morning to do the same thing, to prepare his body for burial. And instead of seeing a body, they got to see the resurrected Lord. Let's go now to one last verse and we'll finish up. John chapter... 19 verse 49 but excuse me not John Luke 23 verse 49 but all who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things here we have included with the women all who knew him well who would all who knew him be well it would include John John 19 verse 26 says this when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved that's John standing there he said to his mother woman here is your son and other than that, I don't know who it would be. Maybe some unnamed disciples who don't show up in the Gospels along with these women. So he had a small band of people there watching him get crucified. That is the end of Jesus' crucifixion. We will now turn to happier events in the next audio as we turn to Jesus' resurrection. I hope you enjoyed this audio.